Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Raw Talk Live COVID Decoded series. This year, we are making the most of the new normal and bringing you a virtual discussion series all about the COVID-19 pandemic. Over eight weeks this summer, we live streamed our discussions with experts on COVID-19 and its impact on science and our society. My name is Erin, and for the second last episode in the series, we approach the pandemic with a health equity lens. I sat down with Dr. Roberta Timothy, Director of Health Promotion at Dalwana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto and co-founder and consultant at Continuing Healing Consultants, as well as Dr. Kynwin Pope, a new family physician and current medical resident at the University of Toronto's Public Health and Preventive Medicine Residency Program. Our discussion unpacked the pre-existing health disparities and inequities that were amplified by the pandemic, the pros and cons of race-based data collection, and the key ingredients for building sustainable change. But before we jump into the discussion, we wish to acknowledge this land on which the University of Toronto and our podcast operates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. All right, let's get into it. Both of you are very strong advocates for health equity in your respective work and professions. And so perhaps this would help to um, our viewers to get to know you both a little bit better. So maybe, Kynwin, I'll turn this one to you first. Can you tell us about uh, a little bit about what motivates you to address and advocate for issues of health equity at the forefront of your work and what keeps you inspired to continue to do so? Sure. Um, so... Yeah, you know, I got into this work uh, originally because I had a lot of internal motivation around, you know, seeing and getting fed up with issues of injustice in society. And I was drawn to health because uh, initially the whole science thing, but also because um, you can see those injustices reflected in health. And so focusing on health kind of helps you you know, make people feel better and well-being, and that's great, but also allows you to work on those injustices at kind of this more upstream level. Um, and so that was really reinforced when I got into medicine and started seeing patients because it became a lot more clear kind of what needed to happen and what people are experiencing um, around me with the social determinants of health, like all of those living conditions that were leading to them to see me as a family doctor. Um, and I think what what got me into public health was just the interdisciplinary aspect of it. You know, not one sector alone, um, and certainly not healthcare alone, can be able to um, do a lot of the work that I wanted to from that higher up level. And so public health being able to work across sectors was something that really interested me and continues to uh, be invigorating because you get to learn about all sorts of things, how planning intersects with health, how um, different policies and in government intersects with health, how um, just the way that society is set up can be changed from within um, and the outside, of course. And I think especially just the people in this line of work and who are working on health equity are already super energized uh, and very dedicated. And I think working with those people, it's hard to, to not be energized about what you're doing because we all have similar goals. And uh, I find it 
exciting to work with all these different people involved. Mm-hmm. And I certainly feel that just from both of your energies, I know that both of you are very motivated to do this type of work. And so I also want to thank both of you for joining us today for this discussion. But Robert, I'm going to turn to you. I want to hear about what motivates you to do the work that you do and what keeps you inspired. Thank you, Erin. Um, I think I was, first of all, I would say I was, I was born into a movement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, my location, I, I come from a working class um, African descendant of, you know, transatlantic um, slavery survivor, um, woman with a disability, uh, mother of two. Um, so I would say that I, I'm, I'm motivated by over like 401, 401 years of active resistance, really, mm-hmm. from African, Indigenous and racialized folks. My elders motivate me who have done so much work trying to eradicate all forms um, of anti-Black racism and intersectional violence. Our kids and our youth motivate me, you know, what's happening right now in terms of the fight back and the resisting against anti-Black racism and, and um, anti-Indigenous racism locally and globally. Uh, my children, the generations to come, they motivate me, you know, the generations unknown. Um, leaders in the community, known and unknown, uh, motivate me. Programs like this, you know, folks like you who are actively trying to Im- implement change through podcasts and through um, education. So I get motivated from uh, many areas. And I think my my main focus is always on decolonizing and dismantling um, systems of oppression and how do we create, you know, inclusive health equity, health empowered places and spaces for all folks. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a lot of things and, and everything motivates me that, you know, just uh dismantles violence and creates equity and change, active equity and active change. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I, I hope that our discussion today will be a step uh, within that direction. And, you know, as you just mentioned, inequities and systemic racism and so many of these issues are uh, very longstanding and very deeply rooted within our systems and our society and historically and presently impact the outcomes of Black, Indigenous and underrepresented, marginalized, racialized groups. And I know that there's a lot to unpack and we're certainly not going to cover that within the hour. But hopefully I'm wondering if we can start to unpack that a little bit just for our viewers, for people who may not be as familiar. And I think that's actually one of the first steps to um, building more equitable structures is awareness and, and understanding and knowledge. Um, so, Roberta, maybe you could start us off and give us a little bit of a, of a background on sort of the historical um, structures that impact um, our current circumstances. Right. Um, so there, that's a huge question. Yes, I know. <laughs> but I think it's an important question. So I think one important thing to, to note is that, you know, Canada is, is a white settler colony, right? So Canada has been settled um, by white, white settlers, and it was done so through genocide of Indigenous people and the and also the with the enslavement of African people. So Africans were brought to um, what's now called Canada, and Indigenous people who were here were um, not only uh, cultural, but also actual uh, physical genocide occurred. And, the, you know, the Indian Act, which is an act that is still, um, still governs Indigenous people's lives in Canada was a way to um, support the state of Canada or the myth building of Canada. So I think there's certain policies in, that people should know. So one, one policies are processes. One is genocide. One is the transatlantic slave trade. One is the Indian Act, the British North American Act. I'm just going to name some things and people can, you know, go research them. Yes. Uh, the Code Noir, which is a which is a anti-black racist policy that governed Africans in uh, in in Canada, which which is now called in Canada. It was the it was uh, governed by France at the time. Uh, the right to vote and the history of the right to vote is really important. The 60s scoop, 
the Chinese Exclusion Act, Komagatu Maru, uh, Japanese internment camps. These are all racist policies that impacted um, health equities for African, Indigenous, and racialized folks today. The criminalization of homosexuality until 1969, bathhouse raids and gay bars, um, the treatment of the mistreatment of Haitian and Vietnamese boat people in the Canadian context, um, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Very critical to understand that the murdering and, and murder and missing of Indigenous women and the violence against Indigenous women is related to um, you know the health inequities that we, we see today. Um, and it continues today, by the way. Bill, Bill C-45, the Cannabis Act, the Canadian Mental Health Act, Children's Aid Society, Indigenous and African children are in the largest numbers of children who are in Children's Aid Society, and that directly has to do with uh, anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism. The criminal justice system, also Indigenous and African folks are, you know, the largest numbers of uh, populations who are incarcerated. Educational system, which is really an educational apartheid system that um, sees Indigenous and African and racialized folks, particularly Indigenous and African folks, not, not getting through, not being able to sustain education or get education that is without experiencing violence. Uh, housing insecurities, food insecurity, uh, HIV stigma. These are some of the, some of the important pieces of understanding of, of the Canadian history. So policies, practices, and institutions that have impacted health for Indigenous, African, and marginalized populations have to do with some of those, uh, those, those policies that I related to. And what it basically has created is an apartheid healthcare system, a system that, has, uh, that's, that doesn't treat everybody equally, that people don't have the same access or the same health results or health outcomes based on race, gender, sexual orientation, age, disability, and the kind of intersectional identity that comes directly from a history of um, a history of violence, a history of brutality that then has now impacted um, or continues to impact our communities. Mm -hmm. Thank you for giving us a really quick overview of so many different uh, factors, and it's. As, as you can imagine, it's incredibly complex and layered. And to be able to create more equitable structures moving forward, you have to understand where all of those things have come from historically um, in order to move forward um, and also to make solutions in the present. And, you know, there are certain terms, and I think um, that we perhaps take for granted right now within our discussion, but I'm wondering, Kainwen, if you could help us to um, just define some of these terms uh, to set us up moving forward, such as intersectionality and positionality. And we know that, you know, so many, the, the intersection of social categorizations and identities that each of us hold can either contribute to privilege or oppression, um, as we've just heard. So I'm wondering if you could help us define some of these terms. Yeah, um, so inter intersectionality, is I guess a way of looking at um, the interconnectedness of different people's social identities um, and how that interconnectedness changes their lived experience. Um, and so for example, you know, my experience of gender uh, as a white woman is going to be different than uh, a racialized woman's experience of gender. And, and their race and um, and their lived experience generally in society, and so then that brings up the point of positionality. What are these social positions? And as you mentioned, um, each sort of position we hold can bring with it either that privilege um, or that oppression. So, and it's unearned privilege and it's unearned oppression. Um, these are not things we took for ourselves, they were given to us. 
Um, and so actually one activity that I went through around positionality that I found was helpful um, was to take some time to like maybe even just three minutes to kind of think about your own positions in society um, and, and actually write it down physically, you know, make a list, um, your gender, your able-bodiedness, your, um, your race, you know, all of these things that um, contribute to our experience of, of um, in society. And you'll notice that at the end of it, if you compared with a, a longer list of all of these types of positions that you're missing some, at least I found that. And it's it's um, those positions that you leave off are often the positions of privilege that you're blind to. Um, and as you mentioned, understanding where you are in society and how your position and intersectionality contributes to your own perceptions um, can really change how you approach things. And we'll get into that also with COVID and responding to COVID. Mm -hmm. And thank you for raising um, your own example. And I think that's a really important exercise for all of us to take on um, moving forward. And so maybe, yeah, we'll, we'll switch gears now and to talk about health uh, equity or inequities within the context of the current COVID-19 pandemic as we've kind of um, set up a nice backdrop for it. Um, and really the beginning of the public health uh, response to the pandemic was flattening the curve. And we had lots of essential measures put in such as social distancing, um, social isolation, um, quarantining. And the expectation is that, you know, everyone can do that and that it can flatten the curve universally. Um, but what we've seen is that COVID is not the great equalizer. And um, and we've we've seen sort of a, a new pandemic of inequality, uh, or not new, um, but perhaps an exacerbation of the existing pandemic of inequality. So, my question, I guess, is how has the pandemic um, exacerbated the existing health equities that we've already inequities that we've already discussed so far, and contribute to increased risk of COVID nineteen for uh, racialized, marginalized, and underrepresented groups? Roberta, maybe I can start off with you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I just want to just say one more yes. thing about intersectionality. Yes. I think it's really important to note also intersectionality comes from Black feminist thought and critical race theory, because I think sometimes that's not talked about. And I really think that to understand it is to know the history. And, and, and I, I just want to put that out there. Um, it's critical to understand that history, particularly when we're talking about uh, what we're going to be talking about. So um, we know that COVID, uh, before COVID, I, I want to go back a little bit. Before COVID, we know that there were health disparities for Indigenous, Black, racialized, uh, marginalized communities. I uh, just want to give a couple examples. Diabetes rates doubled among Black women from 6% to 12%. Black women have a higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease than Black men. Among ethnic communities, Black women have had the most drastic increase in rates of high blood pressure, increasing from 20% in 2001 to 27% in 2012. And the reason I say that, because we've had these um, health injustices before COVID. So that during, you know, during a, a crisis like COVID, of course, we now have, we see that this is intensified for um, African, Indigenous and racialized folks. But particularly, I want to speak um, for, about African folks and um, what's happening. So um, one thing that I think is really important, important to note is that who is susceptible or who are in positions of um, health inequity in our communities. So we know that uh, precarious workers are one group of 
people. We know that essential workers are one group of people. Um, we know that migrant workers, we know that people who um, live in multiple, you know, um, multiple dwellings, so they have more than, you know, three to five uh, people living in their house. Uh, we also know that it's uh, people from uh, working class backgrounds, so people who are coming from, uh, you know, lower income um, places and spaces. And these folks are, uh, in the, the majority, are Black, right? Black and uh, Indigenous and racialized. But I'll, I'll talk about the, the, the Black and racialized statistics. And um, locally, this is locally in the Canadian context, and it's also globally, right? So th this is not only a trend, and I think when we look at global health and we look at decolonizing global health, it's important to connect these uh, health disparities, that there are health disparities globally that um, you know have health inequities for uh, Indigenous and African and racialized folks. And that the what has happened during COVID is that these now have intensified. So that we're seeing people, a higher rates of uh, infection uh, in, in Black and in, in Indigenous uh, communities in Canada and globally. And that also that there is, um, you know, in the Canadian context, um, limited statistics, even though we have some new statistics, and we can talk about that a little later on, and I, I'd like to talk about that. So that the increase, uh, there's an increase in health disparities, an increase in impact uh, that has intensified based on anti-Black racism, based on intersectional violence. And this has caused, this, sorry, this has caused more, you know, more deaths, uh, more, uh, more, apartheid in housing, more food insecurities, um, a lot of grief that's happening within the community. P people are using losing people locally and globally, and also people are dying from non-COVID-related medical death. And I'm really, really curious about those stats and what's going to happen regarding the, the people who are dying from non-COVID-related. And what's happening, because we already have um, a community, I'm talking about the Black community, Indigenous communities, who don't trust the healthcare system because of their experience of violence, and are now not seeking, well, they weren't seeking, um, you know, medical advice or supports before or reduced support. And now because of COVID, they're also seeking less. And my my hypothesis is that we're actually seeing more people dying. I can't tell you, I've been to a couple of funerals already for non-COVID related uh, deaths in our community. And um, I think these numbers are going to increase. And I'm really, really worried about wh what's going to happen as we continue this COVID COVID. Uh, uh, pandemic. Definitely. And I think that that mistrust of the healthcare system is also, you know, prevalent in other groups such as those who are vulnerably or precariously housed. Um, that has already been an, a pre-existing problem for a long time. And, um, you know, of, of course, that that is another issue that has been intersection, intersecting with risk for COVID um, as well. Kynwen, I'm wondering if there are any further thoughts you'd like to add at this time? One thing I wanted to, to touch on just to add to uh, what Dr. Timothy was saying is because there are so many groups impacted, you know, how do we um, how do we break it down and kind of understand why it's happening? And I think Dr. Timothy, you know, got at the source of this is there are these underlying health inequities, meaning there are differences in health outcomes between different groups of people that are unfair and systemic in nature. And, um, and 
what what we've seen is you know this term syndemic comes around a lot and i think that is a good way of um, understanding what's happening there's kind of these underlying issues disease processes that are going on because of these systems of inequality and they're being uh, they're happening at the same time that this pandemic is happening and they're synergistic with each other um, in their population. So they worked so that COVID-19 is exacerbated um, and these underlying inequalities are exacerbated. Um, and one of the ways to think about that, you know, why are we seeing more infections of COVID-19? Um, you know, Dr. Timothy spoke to some of the, what we call the social determinants of health, those living conditions that are already different and already concentrated in these racialized groups, in groups that are, you know, in homeless individuals, in individuals who are um, unemployed. There's a lot of the same concentrations of these challenges with social determinants of health already. Um, but if you kind of think about it, there's, different levels of uh, susceptibility and disease, likelihood of disease severity. If you already have poor health, like doc Dr. Timothy mentions, these group already have underlying poor health because of racism, because of colonialism, because of all of these systems of inequality changing the way that, um, their, that, lives, that their lives are set up in society. And and then you have different levels of exposure. So that's things like, are you going to be able to um, clean your hands and get access to disinfectants and be able to take shelter to isolate um, and uh, be able to take time off work? Are there safety nets for that and good standards of employment for that? Those are also things that are concentrated amongst um, these amongst groups of people who are oppressed in society. And then there's, once you get COVID-19, different levels of um, if you're going to be treated appropriately, right? Are you going to be notified properly? Um, are you going to be, because many of these, um, you know, people who are getting a lot of COVID-19 infections may be undocumented and not be able to access the portal that we've set up that you can only access if you have a health card. Um, and are you going to have access or are you gonna have enough trust in the healthcare system to access uh, healthcare to be able to treat, be treated appropriately? And again, especially with farm workers, there's so much reliance or sorry, hesitance that we've seen to speak to public health, um, to speak to people in positions of power for, for fear, and because of that mistrust about what could happen to them. And, um, and then of course, just those systems of inequality that are um, seen once you've accessed healthcare, um, just differential treatment of individuals within the healthcare system. And so by breaking it down that way, different levels of exposure, different levels of susceptibility and severe disease and different levels of um, the way you're treated after the disease, you can see very clearly how all of these systems of inequality that are underlying our society are contributing to exacerbation of COVID-19 and why they're being concentrated in these groups.
who are oppressed. Thank you so much for breaking down those systems of inequality so succinctly and so clearly for all of us. And I'm wondering, just circling back to the earlier question about how it's being impacted uh, um, on your clinical practice as a physician, I'm wondering if you have any um, things to share. Yeah, um, so I uh, was just finishing up my family medicine residency until the end of June. And so within that time, as part of our residency, we go from different parts of the healthcare system to be able to get different um, learning experiences and training. And um, so I, I was, during that time, I was redeployed to the the hospital to look after COVID patients who were diagnosed with COVID-19 um, and admitted to the hospital. And then I was deployed to a uh, public health unit as an outbreak investigator. So I was liaising and managing um, long-term care and group home outbreaks. And I was working um, directly with healthcare workers who were working in these outbreak settings and the directors of care um, who are responsible for helping manage these. And then after that, I was um, deployed to uh, the emergency department um, where they had set up temporary shelters for homeless individuals who um, basically were turned away from shelters because they had some symptom or other that was consistent with COVID-19 and they needed a place to be able to stay uh, while they were waiting their test result. And so they, they turned the, the emergency department into these temporary shelters and I was rounding on these patients. And then after that, working in a community health center um, that primarily looks after racialized women. And so in all of these different settings, uh, I have seen, I've seen a lot of things, but I think if I had to break it down again, it would be, you know, the impacts of COVID-19 itself, looking after the patients who had COVID-19 and they tended to be older patients, patients already with underlying illnesses. I was seeing the a lot of the unintended consequences of the public health measures themselves. Um, you know, people who rely on their independence to be able to leave and get groceries and um, go for walks to manage their chronic illnesses. And um, these were things that they weren't able to do. And a lot of people who were really isolated um, and their support system that they would normally have was not there. And so that leads to the final thing, which is a lot of exacerbations of mental illness and chronic diseases. Um, I can't tell you the amount of people who have diabetes I saw that was controlled before COVID-19 um, and they were experiencing just poor control of their diabetes, same with high blood pressure. Um, and then of course, all of the anxiety um, and depression that came from both COVID-19 and fears, but also all of the unintended measures, unintended consequences of those public health measures. Um, so yeah, I saw quite a bit firsthand what 
people were experiencing. And that definitely brings us back to, Roberta, uh, what you were mentioning earlier in terms of um, what we might expect to see moving forward uh, in terms of the longer-term impacts of COVID-19, not only on COVID-19 cases, but on all the other um, health outcomes of people in our communities. And um, also related, which is the mental health impact um, of COVID-19 on people within our communities. I know that you also practice as a psychotherapist. I'm wondering how COVID-19 has shaped your experience um, as a clinician uh, during this time. Right. Um, just to add, I think, to uh, Dr. Pope's answers, you know, increased anxiety, increased depression, um, what people call post-traumatic stress, which is sometimes just traumatic stress, depending on if you're having, you know, continued trauma from many other spaces. Um, I know people who are uh, undocumented, who are living with chronic illness, who don't have, uh, who now have no, don't have employment anymore based on COVID and no longer have money to pay, pay for medications, uh, particularly HIV medications, um, or to, you know, for work. And there's been a, a kind of uh, silent mental health crisis that's not really talked about, particularly for undocumented, and I just wanted to mention that. But also, um, you know, in terms of gender violence, woman abuse, um, child abuse, um, there's not that there's not only is it is it has it increased and it always is here. We can see in the in the media reports of you know women being murdered um, uh, still and children being murdered um, within this within this uh, crisis, which was you know it was like that before, but not getting the supports. Um, uh, I think for as a psychotherapist, particularly, you know, who specializes in anti-oppression psychotherapy, uh, the need is so overwhelming. Like, I can't tell you the need for mental health uh, support therapists. Uh, we don't have um, the funding. We're not, we, I mean, so we need the funding, more funding for, you know, particularly mental health based on the, not only the impact of COVID, but the impact of increased anti-Black racism, uh, racism and, and intersectional violence. Uh, the need in the community uh, to deal with grief, as I said earlier, people are dying. You know, I've gone to so many funerals. There's many people who are not able to say goodbye to their loved ones as a direct result for based on the COVID restrictions. So the mental health implications are varied. Uh, we we need more funding, particularly for uh, racialized folks for counseling and mental health. We need to also look outside of the box of psychiatry. Um, I'm not saying that there's not some psychiatry needs, but we need to look at mental health supports and how we can, um, you know, provide people some of those um, resources and sources. Uh, training, also training of uh, mental health uh, practitioners that are able to to work from an anti-oppression or decolonizing process. So, uh, yeah, the work has increased. I I wish I could take every person, you know, called me or you know, wants, and we, I can't, a lot of referring going on, but even with the referrals, everybody's overwhelmed. It's a really overwhelming experience. And I think it's going to increase, particularly if there's going to be a second wave of COVID-19 um, in the fall. We're hoping that something magically disappears, but it looks like it won't be. And, and that increase of mental health, and I want to also want to say um, the impact, I, I, I am fearful of the impact in terms of suicidality. And, um, it being not only the isolation, which is one big thing, but also dealing with the amount of death and, and distress. Um, I I think that the suicidality prevention work, particularly from an anti-oppression perspective, needs to be looked at. 
And thank you for raising that. And um, for just our viewers out there right now listening, we also had a our, our third episode of the COVID Decoded series was um, hosted by me with Don Alexander from CAMH as well as Dr. Rima Styra from UHN. And we talked specifically um, and had a longer discussion about the mental health impacts of the pandemic and the need for culturally appropriate and sensitive care and mental health um, and also mental health services for healthcare workers during this time. And I think that all of these things are so important. Um, and so thank you for raising these issues again. And maybe bringing it back to something that we also discussed a little bit earlier um, was the collection of race-based and sociodemographic data. And since the beginning of the pandemic, there have been increasing calls and advocacy for the collection of this data. And um, you know, finally, in May of 2020, Toronto started collecting this data, and actually last week the report was released from the City of Toronto and Toronto Public Health. I'm wondering, um, what is the importance of collecting race-based and sociodemographic data? The fight for race and sociodemographic data is uh, a fight that started again before COVID, right? Mm -hmm. We wanted to know what's happening within the community. We know that there's a lot of experience of health violence. We wanted the numbers. We want to have, we want to have a quantitative, you know, um, kind of... Uh, project about the numbers of what was happening. I, I do want to say that, you know, um, Dr. David Williams on April 30th, uh, the Ontario Chief Medical Office um, denied the importance mm -hmm. of collecting race-based data. And it's important because we talk about the mistrust. And when we continue the conversation to what's next, we have to we have to debunk and be responsible and accountable for what goes on. And, and that still hasn't happened. I'm glad, I'm really happy that we have some data. That's great that we have data now. And the data, unfortunately, you know, states what we have been saying. And I'm saying we as, um, you know, um, Black, Indigenous, and racialized leaders in, in this community who've been doing the work. And, you know, there's a Black uh, black uh, health leaders wrote a letter. Um, Dr. Eileen Davila in April, um, you know, she talked about the importance of connecting, uh, collecting data. Um, but I also want to say is what happens with the data is critical and who collects it is important. So having, you know, Black health researchers, Indigenous health researchers, people who do anti-oppression work, um, need to be uh, part of the team that's collecting this data, and it needs to be um, done to create interventions and programs uh, and give resources to programs that are already doing really amazing work to support, you know, racialized populations. So we don't want the data to be collected by, um, you know, um, people who have no idea what to do with it, put it that way. You know, we don't want the data to, to be a surveillance piece. We're, we're surveilled on a daily basis by police and, and other government systems. We want the data to be able to do real active change work. And it needs to be done uh, by people who are experiencing um, the violence and people who have done research in this area, people who already know how to do amazing programming, right? And we want the data to kind of, the data is used to, to show what we already know, that there's disparities and hopefully, uh, you know, can create programs that can change disparities, including responsibility and accountability from the government. Mm -hmm. The government needs to be accountable for health disparities and public health, health disparities in this province and to change. So the data should be able to be used to do so. So it's not data for data, don't collect data for data. We're collecting data to create um, you know, uh, equitable change and health equity programs for people who have been exploited and violated within the system. Definitely. And thank you for linking the collection of data to inform change and intervention moving forward and not just stopping it at data. It's just one of those things where, you know, people have, people know what's happening to them. Um, 
but we need those numbers to be able to really bring it to the forefront of the change makers and decision makers. Um, and it's really a backbone of, um, at least in the field of public health, to be able to inform our programming and policy making. Um, but you know, as Dr. Timothy mentioned, it has to be done in a in an appropriate and culturally safe way. Um, the more that I, I learn about public health and the history and all those acts and everything that <laughs> Dr. Timothy mentioned earlier, um, the more I, it's imp I've at least um, you know aimed to understand how uh, public health as a field and of course government has contributed in the past to to those systems of inequality um, through inappropriate collection of data. And um, it's it would be easy to collect data and not do anything with it. And it would be easy to collect data and present it and interpret it in a way so as to further you know, pathologize um, groups or to even use it against groups to say that, you know, we need more policing in a certain area, which is what we've seen in COVID-19. And um, so there are quite a few um, excellent resources out there on how to appropriately collect data. And one of the important things in all of those guidelines is to connect with the groups whose data you're collecting um, because they're the ones who are going to be able to speak to how to collect it appropriately in a culture, culturally safe way, how to store it properly to um, protect these individuals, how to um, disseminate it so that the correct messages are going along with it and to um, use it to inform programming like Dr. Timothy mentioned that will actually do good um, and will go back to the community and to the people who gave that data in the first place. So, um, you know, the Canadian Public Health Association did release guidelines on how to do this properly. Kai High has um, good toolkits on how to do this properly. The Upstream Lab and community health centers across Toronto have already done this. Many community groups have already done this. So this is something that I think moving forward, it's just a matter of setting up those mechanisms to ensure there's appropriate community engagement on this. And um, once that happens, to set up the process so that this can be done on a moving forward basis instead of in a reactive way like we've had to do during COVID-19. After all of this, how can we use all of this data and all of this information to move forward to promote an equitable uh, public health response to protect and keep all of our communities safe? Um, Kynwen, perhaps I can turn to you first. I know that you've been doing some work recently um, around equity-informed public health responses in the pandemic. I have been working at a local public health unit. And so what I can say is across Canada and across the world is we're at this phase now where we're trying to understand what has happened during COVID-19 and then and using those lessons learned to be able to plan for the future. Um, and I think one of the important things with the data is, yes, it has helped us to understand um, quantitatively what, you know, which 
groups have been more impacted and therefore we need more resources and orientation to. Um, but it's not the only part of the picture. Um, you know, if I was to create an analogy towards medicine, like you, you see a patient, if they tell you they have abdominal pain, you don't just say, okay, I can help you <laughs> and come up with a plan based only on that or only get tests and not ask about, you know, the quality of the pain, where the pain is, how long it's been going on, what factors, what, you know, what other associated symptoms do you have? What's the physical exam like? You, you have to look at the whole picture and the data is just one piece of that. So like I said, you know, what we've been trying to do is get more of that qualitative work done as well to be able to understand how to put the data in place in context and then um, identify some of those mechanisms that I was mentioning, um, not just for data management moving forward, but for community engagement moving forward. Um, and uh, so I think the first step is not just to get the data, but also to be able to understand it and put it in context. And then after that, you can be able to kind of develop better um, interventions or reorient your interventions. Mm -hmm. And definitely the, um, the inclusion of qualitative components to the quantitative quantitative data is so important because, you know, of course, the collection of data can be useful in, in telling a particular story, but um, actual human stories are lost within the data. I think that it's important to, and we said this earlier, but I just want to say yes. it again, <laughs> recognize the, the unethical relations that, that exist between the Canadian state and racialized populations, mm -hmm. populations, government and public health and media. We need to understand these pieces and within public health, we need to understand this history. Um, I think that we need to make ethical decisions that support the health and safety of marginalized populations um, and not further hindering them. So this kind of um, earlier focus on ventilator allocation, I was really touched when a 65 year old, um, you know, black woman told me um, about like, hey, you know, when I go there, because, you know, the person's dealing with diabetes, when I get COVID, that was their kind of, you know, story that um, will I be, will I be, and there's not ventilators, will I get I get one and I probably won't and I say that it's it's not a focus on ventilation but to focus on how to deal with um how, how to actually not be racist and not be problematic like it's, it's really critical to, to do that to understand the impact of COVID-19 on our community's health and commit to implementing change continuously at a program and institutional level um to listen and practice empathy with you know within uh our communities with our colleagues with our patients who are dealing with the impact of health violence. I can't tell you that dealing with COVID and dealing with um, anti-Black racism and all of the other intersectional violence has made it a real intensified time. And, you know, in our own working environments, like to come to meetings, Zoom meetings, and not to be, um, you know, not to be even empathized, not to be considered um, what the, the triple um, impact that this has had on Black, Indigenous, and racialized folk is a problem. So if you're, you know, you're in your workplaces, you're in your communities, um, you know, think about the people who are being impacted uh, gravely within this context and, and rethink um, how you're going to act. Uh, unlearn and challenge what you think you know. Um, you know, the, the, the surveillance of, of Black folks and, and Indigenous folks by police need to be challenged because it's something that is preventing from people from leaving their house. It's, it's something that is creating... Uh, continued structural violence, and it does impact our health 
and our health access. So policing and looking at how to change that is really critical. Decolonizing your ideologies and practices are also really important. It's something I always say, how do you change um, yourself? We have to change the structural system, but we have to also change ourselves. So um, what, is, what is your accountability for the next steps? The, next, the last thing I want to say is in terms of vaccine, just because there's a whole conversation about vaccine. I know we didn't get into it today, but looking and understanding historical and current day health inequities, you really have to unpack what happens with vaccines. And that conversation needs to happen now. Based on scientific racism, the, the whole history of eugenics within, um, within science and um, Black and racialized communities, we really need to look at how is that going to be um, taken up and, and how is that going to affect and impact um, health disparities and hopefully uh, create health equity within within the next steps of, of COVID. So I just wanna put that out. And thank you for raising that at the end. Um, so perhaps we could switch over to audience questions. We have a couple here. The first question here is, how should public health go about improving trust with marginalized communities? What could improving community relations look like? We have a lot of work to do on the trust aspect uh, because of how long and bad the history has been between um, the government, government agencies, organizations, institutions, including the field of, of public health. And, um, and so undoing that is going to take a lot of work beyond just good intentions. And so the first step is an internal reflection and is an understanding of how, you know, for example, myself, I've done my schooling, I've done my training in medicine, I've worked, I've been raised within primarily um, white privileged environments, um, curriculums that were created by white privileged folk and, um, in institutions that were set up by white privileged folk with the European settler lens. And so all of what I perceive to be true comes from those institutions. And so you have to first start with your own reflection and your own unlearning of those, of those perceptions, perceptions to be able to learn anew. Um, and then from there, understanding um, you know, how you can be accountable and how you can be transparent with the community that you're trying to serve. In public health, it's interesting because its goals are about population health. Um, and so its goals, you would think, are very well aligned to be able to do this equity work. Um, but because of a lot of those historical pieces and the way it's been set up, it does take a lot of that reflection on an institutional level. Um, as well as the in, and as well as the personal, to be able to um, unlearn that institutional piece mm -hmm. as well, reflecting, unlearning at the personal level, at the institutional and organizational level, and then reaching out to the community and learn listening to them, mm -hmm. but not just listening, incorporating and being accountable to. Mm -hmm. um, Things and I think only there the relationship will will grow and um, hopefully will become better over time. I don't think it'll change overnight to be able to build that trust. 
The second question here is, what can public health units do to address the disparities while balancing active pandemic activity efforts prior or in anticipation for a second wave? And it is the question on um, a lot of the public health units uh, agendas right now. Um, it's actually, you know, I just had a meeting today about how uh, the health unit I'm working at there are all of these lessons learned coming together from a planning perspective for a second wave for the COVID-19 response um, and, and a lessons learned um, summary of, of the equity response mm -hmm. um, for planning for a second wave. And that's what I'm working on. And, um, you know, part of what, what we have had to recognize is we did have to react really fast during that first wave. And now is the time to do all this planning. And hopefully what it means is that we're able to achieve a bit of a better balance um, moving forward now that we have a bit more breathing room. And maybe it's helpful for um, folks to kind of understand um, there are these kind of different, these five different um, phases to pandemic preparedness and response. Um, so there's prevention and mitigation and um, preparedness, response, and then recovery. And so we're, we're kind of bordering this recovery response prevention all at once. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's just important to go back to key principles of how to incorporate health equity work in a public health response when we're doing our active management of COVID-19. I think that, um, you know, we need uh, people who look like myself. We need um, Black racialized folks in positions of power in public health. We need people, and not just who look like myself, but who have an analysis of, of um, you know, anti-oppression and decolonizing um, health perspectives, who can help support the leadership needed to really decolonize, um, you know, public health, right? And and for active allies who um, are, you know, uh, also decolonizing their own practices, as Dr. Pope has said that she, you know, she's doing in her own practice. We we also want you to be a part of this process. Um, but I think the leadership change is critical. Changing that power dynamic and changing, um, giving groups that have been marginalized and um, you know um, treated violently uh, access to power. And within that context, I think it's the heterogeneousness of our community. So we're not looking at just one aspect. We're really looking at incorporating you know um, uh, a lens obviously on race, on, on gender, on gender identity on sexual orientation and age, on disability, on refugee status, on education, um, on undocumented, you know, um, all of these, um, probably missing some other ones, but other religion and spirituality and how that connects to health. So really uh, looking at rethinking how we do public health, number one. Um, this dichotomy between academy and community needs to be separated. I come from the community. I work in the academy. I'm from the community. So the work that we, we do has to be integrated in our community and reflected in every aspect that we are um, doing. Our curriculum, our curriculum needs to be uh, decolonized. I know in the uh, health promotion program, a part of my work here 
uh, as a new director of, of health promotions is to, is to decolonize the curriculum and, and start to, to have an anti-oppression lens in terms of how we're training you know, public health practitioners. How do we train our doctors who we already, already started seeing all these programs now um, you know, having indigenous and, and black um, uh, doctors, which is great, it's wonderful, but what are we training these doctors? Mm -hmm. How do we train these doctors to do health equity and anti-oppression based work? How do we look at medicine differently? We're, you know, how do we uh, challenge the Western notion of medicine? There's so many different notions of medicine and systems that are out there really that we, we, we call alternative, which are really, these are centered systems that have you know, worked for thousands of years. What can we incorporate and how can we incorporate the change in equity through these lenses? Um, I also wanna say something about granting, granting for research. You know, I can tell you, I can tell you for black led research grants, uh, a real anti-black racist experience, put it that way. Um, so we need funders to actually fund, uh, particularly, you know, racialized, I'm talking about black-led research by black-led researchers. Um, that, that needs to happen. We have, we have indigenous health programs that actually have funding now based on uh, anti-indigenous racism. We need to do the same thing for, um, for, for black communities or African communities. Uh, challenge the, uh, you know, CH, uh, CHR to do an anti-oppression audit and you know to to be responsible and accountable for not not giving black-led researchers an opportunity to research our communities. We're like, hey, there's no data, there's no research, but we're not gonna you know we're not gonna give them that. Um, mm, gosh, there's so many other things that I could say. Um, I think you know this is an opportunity right now during COVID. The pain is real, the mistrust is real. Uh, but also the resistance and the hope is real. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we can do this, but we, we have to continue to think differently, think outside of that box. We've got to be accountable for historical and current day traumas and dramas, as I like to say, and, um, and look towards the future uh, with, a, you know, with changing the systems that create this, this violence and really create health equity paths. Resources are needed. Give us resources again. I'm always about resources because people are like, hey, these are really good ideas, et cetera, et cetera. Give us money. I, I have to say that I'm um, heading a Black Health Research COVID project at Dalalana. And, um, you know, they have supported the project. You know, use these big universities, these big public health units and schools and education systems. Give us the resources and we will do the work and show show that you're really a part of the, the, um, the healing, you know, the healing aspects of what we want. I'm wondering, Kynwen, do you have any final words or thoughts that you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, I think just leading off, just ending off on a note of hope is really important. Um, you know, change has happened and will continue to happen. And so long as we capitalize on all of the really amazing things that have brought people together um, during COVID and have um, supported you know, starting to put a lot of these mechanisms in place to support, you know, more change and leverage this change um, moving forward. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. And uh, just recognizing that there, there, there has been change and there will be. So perhaps we can finish off the discussion here. Thank you so much, Dr. Pope and Dr. Timothy, um, for joining us today. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you found this discussion informative. To kick off season five, the COVID Decoded series hosts sat down for a roundtable reflection on what we learned from the series and the pandemic at large. You can check out episode 80 and the other COVID Decoded streams wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, keep it raw.
Raw Talk podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.